Open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 6. We return again to verses 5 through 9, second part of what I expect will be a three-part message entitled, Living and Working in a Bad Situation. Living and working in a bad situation, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. I'm going to read the text for you, but before I do that, let's just take a moment and ask the Spirit of God to grant us hearts of faith as we hear the word together. Our Father, we do pray that your Spirit would work even now among your people. Grant us receptive hearts, Father, attentive ears. We pray for those who are here this morning who do not know Christ, that, Father, the time spent here among your people would be intriguing to them, that, it would, that you would use it, Father, to draw them to ask more questions, that they could clarify for themselves the claims of Christ, and that they might themselves believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, thank you for the word together that we have this morning and for our time of study. May you bless our efforts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6, and beginning in verse 5 and running through verse 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. As we said last time in a couple of weeks back now, this section of Ephesians really beginning here in verse 22 of chapter 5 and running all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6 is what is commonly called the household code, the household code. And what it is, is Paul's instructions to the believers there at Ephesus as to how to conduct themselves as children of God. Now that they have come to, to be sons of the living God through faith in Christ, how is that to impact the various relationships that they find themselves in, primarily in this section within the household? So he begins and he talks about marriage. How is the, the reality of our commitment to Christ to change the way we conduct ourselves in marriage. And Paul gives instruction here to wives and husbands in chapter 5. Then in chapter 6, he turns from husbands and wives and he turns to children and parents and he basically asks and answers the same question. As followers of Christ, how is this supposed to change the way we parent and how is it supposed to change the way children respond to their parents? Here in Pi, in verses 5 through 9, is the third of the significant relationships that would be found in a household of the first century. And this is slaves and masters. 
And this, of course, is something that is culturally completely foreign to us. We don't have any real understanding, experientially, of course, in this kind of environment. And perhaps even the closest one might come to it would be in certain uh, segments of, of uh, society where one might have uh, hired help who, who would reside in the household and help out the household and over whom the head of the household would have certain responsibilities. But even that, of course, is not slavery. And so this section here deals with something that is culturally remote to us, but it was very much a reality for the believers there in the first century in Ephesus. And so Paul is talking about how it is that slaves and masters who are now followers of Christ are to relate to one another. Now last time we, we did an extended introduction and we looked at slavery in the ancient world. And if you'll remember that, you'll remember that I said at that time, and I want to say again here now, that there are, there are no theological foundations given for slavery in the Bible. In other words, the Bible does not provide the theological footing or foundation for slavery. The Bible intersects slavery in the cultures in which the Bible uh, is written and speaks to how slaves and masters are to conduct themselves within those environments. And certainly, you remember last time, we talked about compassion being the, the ruling motif of slavery within the nation of ancient Israel. So, so here, unlike what Paul says to husbands and wives or, or parents and children, where he does provide a theological foundation, here, when he deals with slaves and masters, there is no theological foundation given, merely instruction as to now that you're a follower of Christ, how do you conduct yourself in the relationship in which you find yourselves? Now, again, just to get us thinking about slavery in the Roman world that is so different from the world that you and I understand, we last time spoke briefly about that, and, and we made the point that the, that the Roman world depended upon slaves to operate. That was the prevailing socioeconomic system into which the New Testament um, came, into which the church was birthed. Most estimates are that somewhere around 15% of the population of the Roman world were slaves. And within the, great, and within the big cities, and Ephesus was certainly a large city, that population could be as high as 30%. So 30% could be slaves. And within the context of the church, I might add that it's the likelihood of the percentage of slavery would probably be even higher. It would be even higher. Slaves themselves could, we noted last time, they could earn money through side jobs. They could own property. That's even possible for them to own other slaves. If they were diligent, it was possible for them to, to um, save up adequate resources when they, that they could purchase their own redemption. Most of them by this period of time came into, the, into slavery by being born into it, although certainly uh, prisoners of war was one of the primary means in which a person uh, could be enslaved. Furthermore, we noted that the life of a free person in that day who was not a person of means could be a very difficult life. And so for the slave, economically, there was a certain level of, of economic security that would be provided by their masters for them that a, that a freeborn man might not have, uh, yet still the basis of slavery was, uh, was founded on violence and coercion. 
And there's just no way around that. Slavery at its root and core is always founded upon violence and coercion. And so it is an evil system. It is an evil system, to be sure. And it's into this environment, this socioeconomic environment, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came to set people free. And to set them free, not from their slavery necessarily, their, their physical slavery, their temporal slavery, but to set them free from the slavery that is far more wicked, far more eternally harsh, far more eternally cruel, and that is our slavery to sin. The gospel sets us free from our slavery to sin. And so that this doesn't remain merely a historical sort of exposition uh, I want to do what virtually every expositor will do, and that is I want to make application of the, this text, uh, 5 through 9 here, I want to make application into our present period of time. And I want to do that by um, taking Paul's teaching here to slaves and masters and applying it in terms of our orientation towards work. So that's the way we're going to approach the text uh, this morning. And so what I have for you are five principles. Five principles that govern how we are to live and work when we find ourselves in a bad situation. Okay, that's the outline for us this morning. Five principles of how we are to live and work when we find ourselves in a bad situation. Some of you this morning are in a difficult situation situation with regard to your employment. You might have a boss, perhaps, that is harsh. You may well have a supervisor who is demanding and unreasonable. You are in a difficult situation, and thus this, this message and next week is going to have a lot for you. Now, others of you may think, uh, well, I love my job. I've got, I've got the greatest job going. You wouldn't believe what a great job I have. My boss, you know, he's just he's Christian. And, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful place. And you know what my words to you are? Congratulations. Congratulations. Beyond that, my words to you are this. Just hang on. Okay? It's not going to last. We, we live in a broken world. And we are broken people. And we work for broken people. And so just like marriage, where two sinners come into close proximity and it is inevitable that there are conflicts, it will be inevitable that even your dream job will present difficulties for you. And so this morning, hang in, listen, file it away. Even if you think, well, it doesn't really apply to me now, it will. There'll be a time when it'll come and it will apply. Now, there are five principles Four of the five actually come from this text, but the first of the five comes from a different text, and I'm going to turn you there, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the first of the five principles comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and in particular verses 20 through 24. So the first of the five is from 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 24. Principles 2 through 5 will come from our from our text here in Ephesians. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, 
There is a radical reorienting of our life. We move from what the Bible says is uh, from death to life. We move from death to life. We move from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. In fact, Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 and verse 36 that if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. We think differently. We feel differently. We speak differently. We plan differently. We invest differently. We are now a new creation in Christ and citizens now no longer of this earthly realm, but citizens of a heavenly kingdom that someday will come to this earth and will be actualized in space and time, Messiah's great millennial kingdom. But we are now citizens of this kingdom in waiting. And it is tempting because of that to despise the kingdom in which we now find ourselves. Because we are now part of the new kingdom, part of the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of God, citizens of a heavenly realm, there is a temptation to despise the realm in which we now live. And one of the ways that can show up is a discontentment with life, a discontentment with the place where we find ourselves. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, the discontentment specifically relates to the topic of marriage. It's really interesting. There were all kinds of confusing ideas about marriage for this early church, these Corinthian believers. And so they wrote to the Apostle Paul trying to get things straightened out. Verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote... And then Paul launches in. He said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman and so forth. So he begins a discussion of marriage. The questions that were on their minds were things like this. Should I marry? Should I marry? I'm a, I'm a citizen now of a heavenly kingdom. Should I even partake in, in marriage, which is clearly part of the earthly kingdom? Other questions that they, that they had for him was, should they divorce their unbelieving spouse? Should they put away their unbelieving spouse? What if their unbelieving spouse leaves them because of their new faith in Christ? What about that? What do they do about that? And so the Apostle Paul writes this part of his, of his letter here, the church at, at Corinth, to counteract the, the, the various false teachings that were prevailing and circulating among the believers, and he lays down here a, a basic reality of the gospel that is really important to us. There is a basic reality of the gospel that is simply this, and here it is. God did not save us in order to change our socioeconomic circumstances. Let me say it again. God did not save us in order to change our socioeconomic circumstances circumstances. Therefore, do not overly focus on those things. That's the message. You see it here in verse 20 of chapter 7. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 24. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Called. 
You were not saved in order to change the circumstances, so don't focus on it. Don't make that your highest goal, your highest good. Remain in the circumstances in which you have come to faith in Christ. In other words, said another way, when you become a Christian, you stay in the various relationships and position that you find yourself in, where God has placed you, and you begin to live for Christ there. You become an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ there, among your friends, among your family, among your associates. That is what Christ would have for you. To say it another way, when you first get saved, you should not quit your job and go become a street preacher. Okay? When you get saved, don't quit your job and go become a street preacher. That is not, generally speaking, what God would have for you. However, however, you may find yourself in a work environment that has suddenly grown very, very difficult. And the difficulty has come about because of your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, the question that would come to mind here is, what do I do about that? What do I do about that? Now I am a Christian, and it is really bearing down on me. What do I do? Well, actually, slavery here provides a perfect example of arguing from the greater to the lesser. Arguing from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if we can understand what Paul's words would be to a slave, then we can, which would be the greater position of difficulty, then we can extrapolate to the circumstances that any of us find ourselves in because none of us here this morning are slaves. So, to the slave, verse 21 Paul says, basically, if you are able to get out of your slavery legitimately, do it. But don't make that your primary goal or focus. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. In other words, if you can, if you can find your way out of the slavery in a legitimate way, you could buy your way out or or whatever it is, you can get out of slavery, then get out. Then get out. But that's not the biggest concern. That's not your biggest concern. Now, if you were a slave, you might think that's my biggest concern. And so we can argue here, as they say, from the greater to the lesser. From his words to a slave, we can make application to you and I. Now, the reason, the reason to find contentment and the, and the ability to find contentment and, and serve Christ in the, in the situation we find ourselves is rooted in our understanding that, that when we came to Christ, something significant happened. And what that significant thing is, we, ch- we exchanged our temporal earthly condition, whether it be slavery or freedom, which formally defined us. We were formally defined as a slave or as a freeborn, but that no longer defines us. Instead, there is a, a deeper, greater spiritual reality that defines us, and that is that we are free from sin and are now to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have exchanged, whether it be a temporal earthly slavery or a temporal earthly freedom, for instead 
a slavery to Christ. The spiritual reality of a slavery to Christ and a slavery that is not harsh and not cruel. Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called well free is Christ's slave. In other words, your, your, your temporal human situation is not what uh, defines you any longer. What defines you is that you are now free in Christ, a slave of Christ. This means that we can legitimately say that no one is more free than he who is in Christ And no one is more bound than he who is a slave to sin. Let me say that again to you. No one is more free than he who is in Christ. And no one is more bound than he who is a slave to sin. Paul says, verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become Slaves of men. In light of the tremendous cost that Christ has paid to redeem us from the slave market of sin, we are not allowed, we are not to allow ourselves to be enslaved again by the temporal things, human philosophies, social economic circumstances religious systems, anything that would draw us away from Christ. We are are now slaves of Christ. We are now free in Christ. So, how do we apply all this reality? Well, let me suggest some things for you. Simple principles. Live for Christ in your present circumstances. Wherever you find yourself, live for Christ. Live for Jesus day to day in your present circumstances. Beyond that, if they are intolerable, if you find yourself in intolerable circumstances and you can change it, then do it. Then do it. Listen, if you hate your job and your boss is really, really bad, go get another job. Change. Change. But most important... Most importantly of it all is is beware of being taken captive again now that you have been set free in Christ by anti-Christian philosophies towards life and work. That's the big danger. That's the bigger danger than an unreasonable boss. These anti-Christian philosophies about life and work, things such as materialism and covetousness, You know, the idea that uh, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Jesus says in Luke 12 and verse 15, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We need in in a country and in a culture that is absolutely sold out to greed and to covetousness and to materialism, we need to be on guard against it because it is all around us and it seeps in at every crack. Beyond that, we need to be on guard against finding our self-worth in our job. You know, the idea that busyness is next to godliness or that somehow spirituality is equal to busyness, right, to activity. 
We need to be on guard against these things. I mean, think about it with me this way. If God provided a Sabbath rest to slaves under the Mosaic Covenant, how much more does he expect us who are free in Christ to take time to rest and to reflect upon the reality of our new situation, our new status as children of the living God, huh? If the slaves get a day off, then we who are free must for sure take time to rest and to think and to remember and to worship our God who has done so much for us. Another way that our present anti-Christian philosophies about work can overtake us is, is an anxiety about providing for our family. It sort of expresses itself like this. I don't dare stop running or I'll fall off the treadmill. Kind of reminds me of a time many years ago when I thought I was going to get in shape and joined a gym. <laughs> Newsflash, you've got to do more than just join. <laughs> That's the first part. But I was on the treadmill and, and I uh, had a towel around my neck and I dropped the towel. And what would you do if you dropped the towel? Exactly, you bend over to pick it up. That's a really bad idea on a treadmill. You make a fool of yourself when you're flat on your face on the gym. I never went back. Place not working anyway, so. But so often we, we can put ourselves on this treadmill of life with regard to work. And we, we lie to ourselves by basically saying, listen, I'm doing all this because I've got to provide for my family. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 24. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. O ye of little faith. O ye of little faith. All right, that's not Jesus' permission to kick back. But it is a true understanding of that, that the provision for our families comes from God. It comes from God, not from us. It is his ultimate responsibility, not ours. So, first principle here of the five for living and working in a difficult situation is change what you can. Change what you can. Second. Second is obey where you must. Change what you can, obey where you must. For that, we're back to Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now, just like how Paul handled the situation of the marriage and the children, where he spoke first to the wives, right, and then to the husbands, first to the children, then to the parents. Here he speaks first to the slaves and then to the masters. In other words, he addresses those that are in the position of subordination before he addresses those who are in the position of authority. 
And this, by the way, uh, even the fact that he would write to slaves here should stand out and certainly did stand out in the first century. And the reason it would stand out is because he is addressing these people as free moral agents. He is writing to them as people who are ethically responsible members of a local Christian congregation. That stood out in in, uh, verse 1 here of chapter 6 where he addresses the children that way. He does the same thing here with slaves. He treats the children, verse 1, as believers capable of walking in wisdom in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Here he treats slaves in the exact same way. And this is radical. And the reason it's radical is because in the Roman world of the first century, the slaves were merely property. You remember I told you last time the Latin for a farm slave was instrumentum vocalis, a talking tool. And so Paul writes to the talking tools, And he treats them as though, because that's what they are, that they are morally free agents. They are capable of hearing and responding in faith to the the admonitions that are come to one who is a Christian. Beyond that, in Paul's mind, both the masters and the slaves here are equal parts of the church family, of the local body of Christ. Now, their temporal circumstances certainly differ, right? And they differ in a very significant way. There are masters, right? But notice how Paul uh, addresses these masters here. He calls them masters according to the flesh. In other words, earthly masters. And I believe that by, by doing that, he's reminding the slave and the master of a reality here, which is, yes, you may be slave now and master now, but this is an earthly context, and it is not going to last forever, nor is it uh, the total reality pardon me, of who you are. You may be the master, but you're only a master here on earth. It's temporal. It's temporal. You may be the boss at work. But you're only the boss here in this life. It is a temporal reality. You may be the worker bee. And you may never be anything but the worker bee. Welcome to the club. But understand this. It is merely temporary. It is merely temporary. Beloved, I'm struggling to to convey the immensity of the countercultural nature of Paul's message here. Because by by the way he addresses the members here, slave and master, and his his use of the, the reminder that they are merely earthly masters makes apparent the inherent contradiction, the apparent the the inherent contradiction that exists between spiritual equality and societal slavery. And this is important because it is this reality, this is the theological reality, these are the foundation blocks that set in place and, and support not the notions of slavery but the notions of freedom and equality because we are equal in Christ. We are the spiritual reality that master and slave are brother and sister in Christ. Now, 
It was not Paul's intention here to directly overthrow the century-old system of Roman slavery. If it had been Paul's intention to do this, if he had set himself about becoming a political reformer to somehow overturn what was hundreds and hundreds of years old societal conventions, it is likely that the early church would have been snuffed out immediately and seen as simply a slave rebellion. So it is not Paul's intention to do that, but... The, 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 the reality of the theological underpinnings of the church sets it in motion. It sets it in motion. The Christian church is subversive to an authoritarian culture. Not directly, but indirectly, gradually, over time. As more and more and more people come to, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and come to understand the reality of our oneness in Christ. So his, his motive here, his goal here, is not to overthrow slavery, but rather it is to do something else. And it is to direct the new believers in Christ, both slave and master, to begin to immediately live out the implications of the gospel in the societal context that they find themselves. And so by here by his first address to slaves, look at verse 5. It's a very simple command, a very simple command. It is straightforward. Slaves, be obedient to your master. That's his command. That's his command. In other words, while the natural reaction to your understanding that you are spiritually equal might be to bring about resentment, it might, might tempt you into duplicity, as a believing slave of the first century, you are to lean into the gospel and you are to accept your temporary situation and be the best slave possible. And that's the rest of verse 5 running through verse 7. Be the best slave possible. And it all begins by being obedient, by being obedient. Now, we're not slaves, though, are we? We're not slaves. So we're, we're employees, most of us. So, so how do we apply Paul's teaching to slaves here in the context of the 21st century in which we find ourselves? What are the limits of our obedience to our employer? It's very simple. Here they are. You ready? As an employee, you are obligated to do what your boss tells you to do unless it is illegal, unethical, or immoral, period. There it is. Whatever they tell you to do, unless it is illegal, unethical, or immoral, you are to obey. That's what it means to be a Christian employee. If you find that intolerable you're free to change jobs. But what you are not free to do, what you are not free to do as a Christian employee is to cop a bad attitude. It's to, you're not free to mock your supervisor. You're not free to complain to your coworkers. 
You are not free to cheat your employer by goofing off, by participating in work slowdowns, by taking extended breaks, by misusing company property. You are not free to pilfer from your employer, helping yourself to free samples. You are not free to waste your employer's time by preaching the gospel to your coworkers while he's paying you to pack a box. You are not free to do these things. You are to be obedient to whoever is your boss, whoever is your supervisor, unless what they ask of you or command of you is illegal, immoral, or unethical, in which case you must obey God rather than man. So, the second principle for living and working in a bad situation is very simple. Obey where you must. Obey where you must. Change what you can, number one. Number two, obey where you must. Number three, number three, serve with integrity. Serve with integrity. As Christian slaves, Paul is not only concerned with the fact that they obey their masters, which is a basic societal expectation, right? But he is very interested in the manner in which they obey, as well as the theological motivation behind their obedience. That's what the second half of verse 5 through verse 7 concerns itself with. Simply put, as a follower of Christ, they were to be qualitatively and quantitatively different from the unsaved world. As a follower of Christ, these first century slaves were to be qualitatively different, and they were to be quantitatively different from those around them. And Paul gives here for us, in these verses, second half of verse 5 through verse 7, a fourfold description of Christian service. What is qualitatively and quantitatively the difference? What does it look like? Look at these verses here. Paul says, With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. A fourfold description. Verse 5, they are to work sincerely. That's the first. They are to work sincerely. All right? Be obedient to those who are your masters, your earthly masters, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. As to Christ, they are to work sincerely. In verse 6, they are to work honestly. I'm just going to give you the outline. We'll have to come back to it next week. Okay, but in verse 6, they're to work honestly. First part of the, the verse 6. Second part of verse 6, they're to work wholeheartedly. And then finally in verse 7, to work enthusiastically. Okay, so they're to work sincerely, honestly, wholeheartedly, and enthusiastically. We only have enough time to, to take a look at the first one, so that's what we're going to do. 
Okay, so we'll look at the first one here. Verse 5, they are to work sincerely. Okay, they are to work sincerely. Be obedient to your master with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. This, this concept here where, where Paul speaks of, of fear uh, acts as, uh, as one writer calls it, an envelope that, that surrounds this entire household code. Let me just show you what he's talking about here. Go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 21, which is the lead-in to this entire household code. Right? We are to walk in wisdom, which begins by being filled uh, by the Spirit, and it reveals itself, verse 21, by being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And in this case, Paul says the submission is wife to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. And it is to be done in the fear of Christ. Look down to verse 33. Where Paul closes out his section on husbands and wives, he says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she, and it's translated in the English, most English versions, as respect her husband, but if you look to your margin notes, it's literally fear. It's literally, the word is fear. The wife must see to it that she fears her husband. Now, I understand why the English translators did what they did. Uh, it's hard enough to get respect to uh, fly. Uh, fear would really cause problems. Okay? But that's the word. The word is fear. And here, in verse 5, we see it again. Slaves with fear and trembling. So as the writer says, and I think he's right, it's like an envelope that, that sort of envelops or wraps around this whole section, this, this notion of fear. Now, we've said this before, we'll say it again. The fear that Paul is speaking of here is the idea of a, of a reverence and an awe. A reverence and an awe. Not a, not a fear of punishment. But it's, but, it's a, but it's a profound reverence. It's a profound awe. It's a, it's a sense of that, that would come across you of standing in the presence of the divine, the transcendentness of it all. And, and it's, where does it come from? I mean, certainly, uh, wives, I'm, Paul is not implying that you stand in the presence of your husband and, and that is awe. It might be a lot of things, but it's not that. <laughs> he is definitely not the divine. So what does he mean? What he means is, is that it's the reverence and awe that is, that, is, that is brought about by considering the implications of the lordship of Christ. When you consider the implications of the lordship of Christ... And the reality that it is the ascended Christ who stands behind and authenticates the various authority structures by which God providentially rules over his people that brings about the reverence and awe, the fear. Now let me just remind you, uh, you know, we've been so long gone from chapter 1, but this is all one letter, right? And they would have heard it in, in one reading, and so... They probably would make connections that we need to continually remind ourselves of. 
But um, go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. Let's get a little, uh, little fear this morning. A little fear of the Lord here. Verse 18. Notice how Paul prays. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, by which he that is the Father brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. In other words, when we get a glimpse of the ascended Christ, we are, we are reduced into reverence and awe of the reality of who he is. And when we think rightly about the fact that all these authority structures that Paul's talking about here are rooted in Christ, the ascended one who reigns above all, and are the means through which Christ, the Lord, the ascended one, providentially rules and guides and directs his people, then we accept these things not grudgingly, but willingly, gloriously, delightfully, reverently, with awe, with awe. It is an act of worship, Paul would say. It is an act of worship, not of the, of the person, but of the Christ who stands behind that person's position. When we submit to the authority structures that God has designed, we submit to Christ. We submit to Christ. Now, specifically here, back in chapter 6, Paul states that their submission is to be characterized by sincerity of heart. Do you see that at the end of verse 5? It is to be characterized by sincerity of heart. Another way you could say that is an inner sincerity. An inner sincerity. Their submission to these slaves, the submission to their master, the, the way that they are to obey their master is to, be, is to be brought about by an inner sincerity or even you could say a personal integrity. A personal integrity. One writer says this, and I, and I think he's got it here. He says, in other words, there should be no division between the quality of the labor produced and the attitude of the one who produces it. Let me say it again for you. In other words, there should be no division between the quality of the labor produced and the attitude of the one who produces it. Paul is dealing here with motives. And he is dealing with the motives behind their work. In other words, they're not only to do what they are told... But they are to do what they are told with the kind of attitude that, that one would expect of a follower of Christ as if Christ himself were the one giving the command. 
Over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, where we have, a, in effect, a parallel passage, Paul there says it's to, it's to, you render your service as to Christ. You render it as to Christ. It says, it's, you know, when your boss gives you a command, it says as Christ is giving you that command. Now, beloved, this breaks down all of the false distinctions between the secular and the sacred. This obliterates them. Every task, every task, no matter how small, insignificant, or unpleasant, falls within the sphere of the Lordship of Christ and is to be done to please Him. Let me say it again. Every task, no matter how small, insignificant, or unpleasant, falls within the sphere of the Lordship of Christ and is to be done to please Him. This revolutionizes the way you and I approach work. All right. What have we learned this morning? Let's pull it together. What have we learned this morning? What, what are we going to take into the workplace tomorrow morning, right? Monday morning's coming. That's good news. Okay? Believe me, it's good news. Monday morning's coming. Here's what we take into it. When you are in a bad situation at work, you should get out of it if you can. Get out if you can. But escape from that situation should not be your highest goal. Rather, glorifying Christ by living a gospel-directed life. That's your highest goal. Understanding that freedom from sin is a greater gift than a pleasant work environment. Right? Freedom from sin. Wake up tomorrow morning and start your day by saying, thank you, God, that I didn't wake up in hell where I deserve and that I am free from sin. That reorients your thinking and then go off and face the ogre at the office. Okay? <laughs> Secondly, we learned this this morning. While on the job, we're to do what we're told by our boss without grumbling. Without grumbling. Unless it's illegal, immoral, or unethical. It's as simple as that. Do what you're told. Furthermore, we've learned... That in working for our employer, we are to understand that our attitudes, as well as our actions, reflect our submission to the Lordship of Christ. Your boss may not see your attitude. Christ can. So it's not merely enough to do the right thing. you got to do the right thing for the right reasons with the right attitude. And that will only come as you reflect upon the gospel. To think about Christ. Where is he right now? And what was the path that took him there? And he went on your behalf. That changes everything. Changes everything. And fourth and finally, we are to have personal integrity in these matters. And there's something here about personal integrity that's important to recognize. It cannot be coerced. 
Personal integrity cannot be coerced. Therefore, it is ultimately a demonstration of true freedom. Even for a slave. You understand this? Paul is speaking to slaves here, but he is, he is speaking to them as free men. And when they understand the reality of who they now are in Christ, and they begin to live out that reality voluntarily as an act of faith and worship, then their personal integrity is, is something that is not coerced, is not brought about by fear of punishment. And that makes them ultimately free. It makes them free. When you live with personal integrity, you are no man's slave. May the Spirit of God apply the truth exactly where you and I need it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we do not live in a day and age in which slavery is still part of our socioeconomic reality. What a horrible, terrible thing. Our Father, we now as those residing here in this country, living with the incredible benefits that it provides are remarkably free in a temporal sense. And yet, Father, as Paul would say, we're not to use our freedom as an excuse for sin. And so help us, Lord, to just think about our own job situations, whether it be inside the home or outside the home. To recognize the the reality of the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ over every aspect of our lives. And may that motivate us, may it, may it draw us out of love for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, out of an awe for the ascended one to live differently than the unsaved around us. Father, as employees, may our bosses and supervisors and company owners consider Christians to be, to be employees that they would want, that they would desire, because they can trust us, and because we do good by them, because they prosper through our labor and effort. May we be a witness to those in the job site around us who seek to cut the corners, to take advantage, to grumble, to complain, to have a bad attitude. And Lord, when they ask us why we're different, I pray for the courage to open our mouths and speak about Christ. Our Father, may you unite this teaching this morning with faith in our hearts through your Spirit. That where we need to make change, Lord, that we can make change. 
and our lives would come into greater conformity to the image of Christ who became a slave that we could become free. And Father, I pray for those that are here this morning, man or woman, boy or girl, who does not know Christ. And I pray, Father, that the, the atmosphere of this place, the, the, the truths of the gospel that have been spoken and sung of, and the fellowship of your people would draw them as a, as a pleasant aroma, a, a smell of life to life. Grant us privilege, Father, to open the scriptures with them and show them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him. O Lord, be merciful, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Beloved, go in peace. Be encouraged here this morning as you get up early tomorrow to face another day. God bless you.